you know you have four minutes left of oxygen and you're waiting for tanks to come and you know these oxygen tankers are many, many miles away. And it comes down to three minutes, two minutes, one minute and the oxygen goes off. Hello and welcome to the Matrix Law Pod with me, Richard Hermer, together with my colleague, Helen Mountfield. One of our earliest episodes last year examined the impact that COVID was having on the rule of law in fragile democracies, including Hungary, Hong Kong and Israel. We spoke to Colin Gonzalez, one of India's most prominent human rights lawyers, about the situation in his country, which from the perspective of a Britain then ravaged by COVID, appeared to be relatively unscathed. Although Colin warned us, in frankly terms that were apocalyptic, that things were likely to get far worse. A year on, tragically, Colin has been proved right. As we all know, India is the current epicentre of the pandemic. The official figures of approximately a quarter of a million dead are widely believed to be a gross underestimate of the ravages of the disease, both in the cities and in rural communities. Each day, new horror stories arrive of hospitals running out of space, of oxygen and potentially life-saving medicines, whilst the country faces even a shortage of wood to feed funeral pyres. On the day we're recording this, the 7th of May 2021, over 400,000 new cases have been reported in the last 24 hours. And so it's with grave concern that we turn again to Colin for an update on India. We want to talk not simply about the emergency on the ground, but what the impact has been on the rule of law and what role, if any, the courts have had to play in ensuring that the state acts to protect life and health of its population. We also want to discuss with Colin the broader context. What does the response of the Modi government to this crisis reveal about its agenda and the long-term implications for the rule of law and human rights in India? Is there any hope that the courts will provide a counterbalance to constitutionally questionable acts of the BJP government? And finally, we want to address the bigger global picture and ask whether it's possible to discern trends in how different countries have fared to the coronavirus. Is it simply chance that fragile democracies run by autocratic populists, be they Trump, Bolsonaro or Modi, seem to be faring particularly badly? And if it's not chance, what is it? Now, Colin, as many will know, is a senior advocate of the Indian Supreme Court and the founder of the Human Rights Lawyers Network, which is a nationwide collective of over 200 lawyers whose mission is to provide legal support to the most vulnerable and disadvantaged in Indian society. It is India's most prominent civil liberties organisation. And if I were to set out a list of all the groundbreaking cases that Colin has driven through the Indian Supreme Court, it would take up all of this pod. But suffice it to say, both as a professional and as a person, Colin is a source of inspiration to many of us in the world of human rights. Colin, it's, I would say it's a pleasure to see you here, but in the circumstances, it's good to see you here. But tell us, firstly, how things are for you and the, 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 the general health position that we're hearing about daily in, in, in India. Uh, well, Richard, I'm fine. My family is fine. But in our office, we've had many people who've been down with COVID. And we've been communicating to our lawyers in the, in the network. Uh, some of them come on Zoom with oxygen uh, masks around their faces. So the situation has been very dire. And uh, in the first round, I didn't come across too many people personally who died. But now everyone, and I've, I've known so many of my colleagues and friends who've died, 
and in my office so many people have their parents and so on who died so it's coming closer and closer <laughs> but i keep up a relentless uh, schedule of working as usual in my office works and i work and as you can see i'm not using a mask at all so it's coming closer and closer is it and tell me the one of the issues that we're learning about here when we're told about the death rate in india is that it is likely to be a very significant underestimate. I mean, does that, does that accord with, with your experience? Well, as we talk today, we have 22 million COVID cases. And we have, like you mentioned, a quarter of a million people dead. Now, this is gross underreporting, and India is famous for that, because when we speak of the situation in the villages, we get information of people dying like flies. And are these deaths reported, recorded? Does anybody care? So the figures are actually uh, unbelievably high and the world will never know and Indians will never be told actually how many people died. Having said that, the real reason why people are dying, and I want to make this point because this is the core of the issue in the developing countries, I think, is not COVID. People don't die of COVID. People die because the health infrastructure over years has degenerated and disintegrated. People die because when they fall ill, they don't get the correct advice as to what to do. Our ministers, even till today, a year and a half after the first wave, don't know what medicines to prescribe. And an elementary thing like oxygen, Richard, you mentioned it in your introductory message. Can you imagine hundreds of cases with the family surrounding the bed, bedside of the you know family member, sometimes children and so on, surrounding them, and the and the timing. You know you have four minutes left of oxygen, and you're waiting for tanks to come, and you know these oxygen tankers are many many miles away, and it comes down to three minutes, two minutes, one minute. And the oxygen goes off. And in a few minutes, the body turns blue. Young people, bodies turn blue and the relatives are around bedside and they see it happen. It's only because India had to spend 3% of GDP on health rights. For years, the government has been criticized for this. All governments, the Congress government, the BJP government, nobody cared. And even today, we have the government giving you today 0.9% of GDP. So what do you have? Hospitals without doctors, hospitals without nurses, no beds, no oxygen, no drugs. None of the basic infrastructure that the system should help, should have. And to add to this, India has a wonderful indigenous system of homeopathy and Ayurveda. Which, if the Prime Minister had said right in the beginning, instead of giving foolish advice like we fought the COVID and we won. So come out on your balconies and bang your pots and pans and, you know, write it, light your dias. A premature announcement. Had he simply said, you all know what homeopathic medicines to take to build immunity. You all know about Ayurveda. Please start. Even if we don't have the medicines, please start with what is part of traditional Indian medicines. The Chinese did that. And Chinese medicine played a very big role in the recuperating of society. But not here. So, Colin, to what degree uh, have the media covered 
the realities of the current health crisis and to what degree have they been allowed to with, or have limitations been placed on the ability of the free press to report? Well, in the first round of COVID, that is in the year 2020, there was a great deal of deference to the central government and to the prime minister. And nobody would even dare think that the prime minister hadn't the foggiest idea what's going on and that the central government had not an idea about how to handle the COVID crisis. So the newspapers were all sanitized. The news in the te on television was all sanitized and social media was also muted. But now in 2021, there is a flood of criticism of the government because nobody believes the government anymore. The government has made so many mistakes from telling them that this was a short-term viral kind of attack and, you know, by the end of 2020, everything will be okay and we'll go back to normalcy, to making mistakes in the medicines, to not providing oxygen and so on. So many blunders that this government is today seen as a government that is blundering on the COVID front and is uncaring of the people of India. So the criticism has accelerated. And I suspect that in the coming days, there's going to be very strong and searching criticism of this government. You said, um, Colin, that there wasn't much media criticism, at least in the mainstream media, in 2020. Why was that? Is that overt muzzling? It was a combination of muzzling and corporate ownership of media, which by 2018 was almost complete. So most of the newspapers are now almost directly controlled by corporate houses. Uh, almost the entire television uh, networks are entirely controlled by corporate houses, and but they can't control social media. So this is actually the period of... Uh, glorious expansion of social media and perhaps it even replaces traditional media in many ways. Then, of course, the use of the Disaster Management Act to, you know, to stifle and to, and to threaten people with criminal prosecutions for criticizing the prime minister or the ministers and so on. And many journalists have been jailed, including with sedition cases, for filing cases, for filing uh, articles against the government, criticizing the government and criticizing ministers. Can you imagine sedition, which covers uh, life imprisonment as a possible sentence? And that, that law is being used. It's not just the threat not of only it. Used, not only it. used, but used extensively. And there have been cases after cases of prominent journalists uh, against whom complaints are, criminal complaints are made, and the journalists have been arrested for criticism, so much so that the Supreme Court had to come in and say, we can't stop criticism. Legitimate criticism is not sedition. So in that instance, the Supreme Court has stepped in to uphold the rights of the media. That's right. There's a change now. The Supreme Court also was very deferential to this government. In the year 2020, we couldn't get cases in against the government. It was such a sad period. And there was... And there was very trenchant criticism against the government for basically bowing down to the, uh, to, uh, to, against the courts for bowing down to the government. But not now anymore. Now the courts are waking up 
And I think 2021 is a, is a period where the courts are going to give this government a tough time and judicially review the actions of the government in respect of their handling of the COVID crisis. Cool, and that's a, a, a really interesting point you make because you, you, I mean, you point out the criticism that there's been of the Supreme Court, I mean, including quite recently by commentators saying it's been complicit. But you identify a change. What's, what do you identify as the, as the root cause of that change? Has it been COVID? Has it just been things have gone so far that the Supreme Court decided they've had enough? What's, what's, what's behind it? Well, two things. One is that we have a new chief justice and the, a new, the chief justice plays a very important role in the court because public interest cases go before the bench presided over by the chief justice, one. But I don't want to put too much emphasis on that. The real change is taking place because the press have had it with this government. And the press has criticized the earlier chief justice and the earlier judgments of the court in language that I have not seen in all my years of practice. That deference to the court is gone. And that sharpness of tone and that ridicule of, of, of court judges who give bad judgments is, is a new phase in India. And I think it's, uh, it's spurring the court to wake up to the reality that people don't respect them as they thought uh, they did. And they better do something about it to regain that respect. So it sounds like a really pivotal moment from a kind of yes. a constitutional perspective. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's it's going to be a, a new India, not because the courts are changing or because the government will heed things and so on. It's because I think the people of India are on the rise. And the people of India realize they have to take their their future into their own hands. They must not believe the government. They must not follow its instructions unless they are convinced. And they must, in a sense, take the law into their own hands. Not in the sense of breaking the law, but uh, ensure that the law is being enforced by not waiting for anyone else to ensure the law, but by doing it yourselves, collectively, with mass actions, demonstrations and protests. Can I, I mean, just kind of push that a bit more and just try and explore it through the kind of the prism of COVID. I mean, in this country, we've had a few challenges to various aspects of how the government's responded to COVID and COVID regulations and what they've done and what they haven't done. Generally, they haven't got very far here. What about in India? Have there been um, COVID-related challenges before the courts, including the Supreme Court? And if so, what's, what, what have they been about and what's happened? Not a single challenge against the COVID uh related uh, big decisions the vaccine decision and and the decision to lock down suddenly the decision to uh, not be prepared at all in respect of migration of millions of workers uh, the the failure of government to deal with the situation of the specter of large scale starvation deaths in the country no criticism now that is stopping. Now, I think in 2021, we will see a series of cases challenging the fundamentals of the government's response on COVID. This is vaccine safe. And now the real challenges are coming up. I can't tell you too much about that. But is this vaccine safe at all? Have the adverse events been monitored and followed? Is a single person paid compensation for death 
or adverse events, serious adverse events, including falling into coma on account of the vaccine. Uh, many, many questions will be asked of a fundamental nature, dangerous to ask, very dangerous to ask, but they will be asked, I suppose. People have had it. What about in terms of um, challenges to the lack of health care for so many millions of Indians? I mean, one of your famous cases is using the right of life provision to um, persuade the Supreme Court to order the government to provide food to starving people. Are we going? Do you think we're going to see in India inventive uh, use of human rights principles? to ensure some degree of basic health care for the population? Uh, Richard, you know, on the right to food, for example, it's been so disappointing because we were involved in that case from 2020 till 2018, from, 20, from 2000 to 2018. It was an 18-year-old class action case that covered 400 million people and saw the subsidized grains being distributed ultimately to 700 million people. So we were so optimistic about the case, but COVID and this government and the judiciary included have succeeded in unraveling so many of our victories. The feeding centers called Anganwadis in India have all been closed. The midday meal given to every student, whether or not the school is running, uh, has, been, has been stopped. Supplementary nutrition for pregnant women, lactating mothers stopped the public distribution system, probably on the verge of uh, privatization or closure. So all that we stood for and fought for 18 years and more is now we are, we are afraid that it's all going to come to an end. And uh, we're fighting back and the number of cases have been done in court. But I am very afraid that we are going to lose and go backwards many, many years. So, Colin, people who try to use socioeconomic rights in um, English courts look with some envy at people like you who are making creative use of the right to food in India to create remedies or have done that. But if you're saying that, that is, there's a sort of pulling back on that, why is that? What's happening to that idea of progressive realization of rights that you're having less success with those arguments now? Well, the Indian courts are notwithstanding whatever I've said earlier, the Indian courts are still very vigorous on public interest litigation and probably leading the world in terms of what they can or cannot do and actually do. But there's been one big change in India, and that is that the government has won so often, and this government with this one point policy, namely, if you are part of the majoritarian group, vote for us. And that's been a magic formula that has caused them to win elections after elections, except now in West Bengal, where they lost for the first time. And I think it is the beginning of the change, hopefully. Now, that government has been so strong that it overawed the judiciary. And for the last five years, the judiciary has become very timid. And in the first year of COVID, which is last year, we saw the court completely capitulate to the government in such a pathetic way that in all our cases, when people were without food 
uh, without transportation to go home, without a place to stay. The court told us again and again, well, we're not experts. We can't tell you what to do. We can't tell you what uh, you know should be done in COVID-like situation. Go back and apply to the government. And we said, it's precisely the government's inaction which is, which is pushing us to come to you. But the court abandoned us. The court deserted us. And it was almost as if the judicial system closed down during the period of COVID. But now there is a turn. And I think, and I hope I'm not too optimistic, perhaps the judiciary, which got quite a bit of very trenchant criticism for its abdication, will try and recover some of its lost prestige, lost grandeur, and assert itself once again. And Colin, what kind of tools do you have in, in the Indian legal system to assert rights to, I don't know, medical supplies or equal or fairer access to health care? How, how do you go about arguing a case like that? It, well, well it's, a very, it's a very routine uh, use of writ jurisdiction. Uh, writ jurisdiction is, is, is at, uh, at heart very similar to the, your practice in the UK, except that it's been expanded so many times to include everything under the sun. And our courts and uh, our judges have enormous power under Article 21, so it's the magical article, the right to life, which includes dignity, it includes food, education, environment, healthcare, legal aid, the works. So it's a magical article and you can just go to the high courts of the states and you go to the Supreme Court of India directly. And uh, it's just the judge, if the judge is all right, uh, magic, you can do magic in the courts. Like yesterday, for example, I must tell you, we filed a single case. The arguments were exactly seven minutes. A case which said that there's overcrowding of 200% in the jails. And we asked the court to release prisoners, release under trial prisoners, convict prisoners, and so on and so forth. Even persons convicted of crimes, release them because it's 200% overcrowding and COVID is spreading. And yesterday, the seven-minute hearing, and the court uh, reserved judgment and uh, Today, the judgment is out, releasing effectively 70,000 people from the prisons of India. <laughs> totally well, unbelievable. <laughs> Even for me, it's unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. And is there criticism in India of the role of judges? Because as we as things get more authoritarian here, we do see that in this country, people saying, oh, judges shouldn't be doing that. They should be deferring to the elected branch of government. Is that something that's said in India? Well, there's always this argument. It's a very old uh, argument, you know, that judges ought not to be doing this, you know, division of uh, separation of powers and all that sort of thing. But the people's support for what judges do when they do exciting things like they do in India the people's support and the response of the media is what is decisive. Who cares about one, what some fuddy-duddy lawyer may say in court? But if the media and if uh, the people come out in support, and in India you have 750 million people below the poverty line, so you can imagine a good judgment, you get a big fan club <laughs> immediately. <laughs> so we're not bothered really about those guys. Yes. Colin, can I ask you about another aspect of how Indian courts um, are dealing with a point that we're grappling with here? So one of the issues we've had here with COVID is it's um, 
unequal impact. So that COVID here has particularly impacted upon uh, communities at the lower end of social economic scale. They've particularly acted on, um, a- a particularly adverse on communities of colour. I mean, has that been a feature of Indian experience? I mean, are, are, for example, are Dalits, are we finding re- infection rates, death rates higher in um, disadvantaged communities in India? And if so, is that, is that, does that sound in law? Is that, is that likely to form the subject matter of litigation or has it already? Well, it's not formed the subject matter of litigation and I've not seen studies dealing with this specifically. But there have been some kind of reports, not very rigorous reports of tribals, Dalits, slum dwellers and so on being affected hugely by COVID and not receiving medical treatment at all. So I suppose any country with a large population where people live like sardines in a can and without any proper health care and so on and and mainly without any proper nutrition uh, the COVID rates would be higher and more important than that, uh, the right to access health services would be non-existent. They would just die in their huts and in the, in the villages and in the tribal areas. They would just die like flies and no one would even notice or care. More important, they care. And that's the new thing about India today. Nobody cares. If you die of hunger, Starvation deaths, nobody cares. If you die because you didn't get into a hospital, nobody cares. If you die because you're out of school for the last one and a half year, because the schools are closed, nobody cares. So you're moving into a completely different kind of society that is democratic only in name, but it is a very vicious kind of society where things that you would expect that somebody would care if you die doesn't exist. So how should your responses be? How should your responses be chiseled to tackle a government as ruthless and merciless and heartless as this? What's caused that profound change in society where people no longer care? I think we've gone to uh, a more uh, a more intense uh, definition of globalization. We abandon social democracy and when you abandon social democracy in a country like India, it means state intervention on behalf of the poor to take, as Jawaharlal Nehru would say, take rich and poor alike, maybe with some difference, but take the country along unitedly, that's gone. And the rule by the corporations, the corporations run this government, they run the departments of government, they draft the law, they make the policies, they decide exactly what you do. And uh, corporations are taking over airports, they're taking over the grain, the granaries, uh, the official granaries where 70 million tons of grain are. Now, when the corporations run a country, they really don't care if you die. What difference does it make to GDP? What difference does it make if, let's say, a million people die? Or you're sick, all right, you're sick, die, okay, survival of the fittest. If corporation, corporate uh, ideology and thinking in its very naked form begins to, ruthless form begins to operate, you'll see a very different society. That's what we've come to in India. The old is gone. Mahatma Gandhi, you know, love and peace and non-violence and so on. All that is gone. 
Now it's ruthlessness and violence as the order of the day. That's probably a good point just to pivot away for a moment out of out of India and just kind of step back and look at the big picture here. When I kind of floated in the opening, which is, is it too early to tell or can we tell yet why it is that some countries are doing very well with COVID in terms of the health of the population and numbers of deaths and others are doing poorly? And is it too simplistic to look at countries like India, where you've got an autocratic ruler of a fragile democracy, a populist ruler? Look at the US under Trump, look at Brazil under Bolsonaro, Hungary under Orban, and you can look at countries that appear to have a pretty appalling track record on public health. I mean, are we going to be able to look back and identify a link between the nature of populist regimes and, and, and deaths from COVID? Or is that going to just, is that too simplistic or too early to tell? Well, I can identify roughly four areas where a comparison should be made. First is countries which had a good infrastructure in their public health system have done better. You, they might have had many, many COVID cases but because they could take their people into hospitals and give them basic treatment, they did better. Secondly, countries which did not impose an immediate and excessive lockdown, but did a moderate kind of balancing act between keeping the economy going on the one hand and keeping social distancing and those measures alive. Countries that did a moderate lockdown did better. And we are an example of the other extreme where we locked down in a minute. A country of 1,300 million people found themselves locked in their houses in one minute and all their factories closed. Third is countries that monitor the adverse effect of what I think is a very dangerous vaccine, this AstraZeneca, and banned this vaccine. I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, that's the reaction I get all the time. But I have a feeling, yeah. um, Richard, yeah, we, we'll take a bet on this, right? <laughs> If you watch the countries that closed them down and banned the vaccine, this AstraZeneca, I'm not talking about all vaccines in general, and I'm not saying that all vaccines are bad, but banned them when they found blood clotting and so on. I have a feeling that these countries that reacted immediately to deaths and adverse events will come out in the long run as successful countries in their handling of COVID. Well, it may and reflect a sensitivity to risk. Um, in, in certain countries is, yes. is, is, is higher than in others. I mean, I've yes. got to say on this, the particular risk of clotting on this vaccine strikes me as so low that I can't wait to my second jab. But anyway. Hold <laughs> oh, <laughs> the idea. Hold your breath. Wait for about three or four, six months more. Let's see what happens. But countries that were sensitive to people who got adverse reactions or died Proximate to the vaccine were showing enlightened thinking. And last, countries with good nutrition levels. Decent nutrition levels did better. These are the four yeah. defining characteristics. Yeah. What's India going to be looking like in a in another couple of months' time, Colin? How's what's what's the what's the short term prognosis? 
the short term prognosis is that we are going our descent into hell is steepening and accelerating we are in very bad shape i tell all young people who come to me and so on you know they 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 come with idealism they want to work for their country i told them get out of this country as quickly as you can there's really no hope there's such a decline we call it in india the the period of color yug of darkness where satan or the rakshasas take control of society and the forces of good are on rapid retreat that's the situation when i spoke to you last on the podcast and i asked you not about the short term but i asked you about the long term future of india you you were kind of positive because you thought that actually the advent of social media and said a renewed sense of activism from the young offered sort of real seeds of hope for the long term are you are you still of that view or have the intervening months and everything we've witnessed in india yeah, yeah my, con- my my confidence in that view is shaken over the last few but at the same time i can see millions of indians young indians protesting and standing up and we are a young country with the youngest uh, largest number of young people in the world even more than china and it's 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 an unknown card in that sense it's anybody's guess as to where these young people would go but i have a feeling and take it with a pinch of salt because i'm an optimistic person by nature i have a feeling that the young this unknown entity are going to turn out decisive in indian politics and that they're not going to take this rubbish of the past our customs our traditions all these things we were so proud of which are so despicable and they will make a new india with new ideas and new values and uh, nothing signifies that movement more than the love jihad where people of different religions come and get married and the court, and the government has made a has made a statute saying that if you are of different religions and you get married you know you can be prosecuted and put in jail and you know love jihad is exactly what the young want the right to love the right to life is impossible without the right to love and that's the pivot of the change hopefully well colin that's a kind of a, the right to love is a perfect point uh, on which to you uh, and Thank you so much for joining us. Obviously, we're going to be thinking about you a lot over the coming weeks and looking forward to better news coming out of India. Colin, thank you so much. Take care, Richard. Take care, Helen. Uh, So, Helen, interesting and... kind of humbling to talk to Colin um as always i mean putting aside i don't share quite the same views as he does it's fair to say on astrazeneca vaccine well i hope he's wrong on that <laughs> yeah the, the big picture in india I mean, the takeaways from me were both positive and negative and almost actually the real tension between the two so you've got a court the supreme court of india that seems to be at a point in which it is happy once again to countenance challenging government but yet a deep pessimism about where the country is going what what yeah. what take away well I, mean, i thought it was interesting as well that the the judges in india from what colin was saying seem to be almost encouraged by the lack of effective electoral opposition to take their role seriously and to be prepared to make 
you know, to, to enforce the law. But I guess the question is whether that continues and whether people, in view of what you were saying about um, threats, you know, threats of bringing sedition claims, for example, people dare to approach the courts or whether actually what happens is the chilling effect of going to court at all. So I do think with a regime like the Indian regime, we do need to be very careful um, to, to see what happens about the rule of law in India. I mean, some echoes... I mean, obviously not absolute, but some echoes as to concerns here as to what the response of the courts is going to be to the threat by government to limit judicial review, to review Human Rights Act. Still some talks, some talk amongst some in the Tory party about reforming the Supreme Court. Um, it's hard to listen to people talking about, um, the relationship between the executive and courts in countries such as India without sort of having some parallels going on in the back of one's mind. Yes, and it does show you how cultural it is that, you know, the judges, I think, in world round are sensitive to what the idea of whether they are performing their role properly. And it does sound as if in India like here, there are conversations about whether judges are going too far. The question is, I guess, the confidence of the judges in, in the propriety of their role um and yeah although i have some uneasiness with the idea i mean it might be producing a good result but i have some uneasiness but it's uh, what's causing this is that um, newspapers are starting to criticize judges rather than judges realizing that it's their function to uphold yes. the law no matter what the, no matter how angry the executive might get Yes, and that it is interesting. Is it's slightly the reverse of here, where here we have newspapers saying judges are enemies of the people if they do enforce, um, do, do, do enforce the law and, or make reach judgments that the, the the newspapers don't like. Whereas there, it seems to be, why are you not doing more through the law? So it is it's, it's a reverse it's reverse criticism, but it is still the case that they are reacting to the views of civil society. Whereas what you're really hoping is that judges will be holding the ring as to the, the rules that civil society has crystallised in laws and saying, well, that's what we enforce, and then you get on with it around that. Well, I look forward to the day when that's a uh, governing principle. Uh, in the meanwhile, um, great chatting, and um, we will convene again uh, for the next Matrix uh, Law Pod. Thanks, Helen. Thanks. Bye.